for the traditionalists who say the current system is the only way, they, they do have to answer that question. You know, you've got a third of children failing. You've got a third of teachers told us, you know, ready to quit. You've got one in six children, you know, with a um, probable mental health disorder. The, the current system isn't working, in, you know, so there needs to be an answer to that. If, if our answer isn't the answer, then what's your answer? Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello folks, before we get into today's episode, a quick word about the Rethinking Education conference taking place later this year. This will be an education conference with a difference. Everyone is affected by education in some way, but education conferences are often not hugely representative of the wider world. In particular, the voices of young people, parents and carers and classroom practitioners are often overlooked and unheard. This conference will be an opportunity for people from all walks of life to come together, to have your voice heard, to learn from other people's perspectives and to work together to create an education system that works for all young people. This event is aimed to bring together people from five different groups and to ensure that as far as possible, these five groups will be equally represented on the platforms, mainstream educators, alternative educators, parents and carers, young people and education reform types. You don't have to do a talk to make your voice heard. Alongside the keynote speakers and presentations, the conference will feature a range of inclusive, interactive sessions and activities, workshops and debates, circle time sessions, panel discussions, hot takes, and a session in the middle of the day that we're referring to as disorganized mingling. Confirmed speakers to date include Sir Tim Brighouse, Yumna Hussain, the youth MP for Birmingham, Mick Waters, Deborah Kidd, Neil Mercer, Vivian Porritt, the head of Women Ed, Dr. Naomi Fisher, Ian Cunningham, Guy Claxton, Mina Wood, Kulvan Atwal, Sarah Selesnyov, the co-head teacher of the brand new School 360. The list goes on. The speaker announcements will be made later this week and it is going to be quite the event. There is a quota of free tickets available for young people and parents and carers should you require it. We really don't want money to be a barrier to attendance at this important event. The event will be 100% accessible by wheelchair and it is on Saturday the 17th of September from 9.30am to 4.30pm at Addy and Stanhope School in New Cross in London. But there's also going to be an online version of the conference and so you can attend this conference and contribute to it from wherever you are in the world. Early bird tickets are available until the 17th of July and that will give you a 20% discount. Visit rethinking-ed.org for more details or click the link in the show notes. Thank you for your attention. Greetings, fellow inhabitants of Planet World. Welcome to episode 40 of the Rethinking Education podcast. We are officially over the hill. As you may be aware, a couple of years ago, the Times newspaper set up an education commission prompted by Sir Anthony Selden, which was really an attempt to take a fresh look at our education system, what's working well and what needs fixing, and to make a set of recommendations in the hope that the political parties who often seem a little bit short of ideas on the education front, will adopt some of its key recommendations. The report came out this week and it has made quite the splash. There are links in the show notes where you can download a copy of the report and see some of the coverage that it's had in the press. And the report makes 12 key recommendations. I won't go through these now, but they're quite wide ranging and they cover things like assessment, technology, mental health and well-being, reforming Ofsted, and perhaps most interestingly of all, decoupling education from the short-term interests of the electoral cycle by setting up a cross-party group that would create a 15-year plan for education. So, this week I'm speaking with Rachel Sylvester, a political journalist at The Times and the chair of The Times Education Commission. 
It's a fascinating conversation and I attended the launch event this week as well where Rachel was joined by some of the commissioners and it really makes me feel quite hopeful that we might finally start to see some movement in terms of achieving some significant forward-thinking education reforms. In particular, if we can do the last of these recommendations to decouple education policy from short-term political thinking and set up a 15-year strategy, then many good things will follow. How we achieve that is the big question. I think it would be quite the legacy for a politician to be remembered as the person who finally sorted out education by setting up a 15-year plan. Will it be Nadim Zahawi? Will it be Bridget Philipson? Stay tuned, folks. It's a cliffhanger. So, without further ado, I will hand over to my very recent conversation with Rachel Sylvester. I hope you enjoy the show. Rachel Sylvester, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hi, very nice to be here, James. It's an absolute delight to, to meet you, and I'm really looking forward to, to hearing what you have to say. So you've been busy of late, um, chairing the, the Times Ed Commission. Just before we get into that, could you briefly just sort of introduce yourself to, to listeners and the work that you do generally before you got involved in this, in this education commission? Yeah, so I'm a political journalist normally. I write columns for The Times and I do interviews as well. And I've been doing that since 1996 for various papers and for the last 10 years or 12 years for The Times. Um, but about a year ago, uh, the editor asked me to chair this education commission um, which has been absolutely fascinating and inspiring, but also in some ways kind of depressing because it could be so much better. Right. Education could be so much better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah not the commission. <laughs> not the commission, no. <laughs> uh, and so, so why did this commission come about? Why is the Times getting involved in this conversation? Well, this came about as an idea from Sir Anthony Seldon, who's a former head teacher, former vice chancellor, a kind of long-standing and respected educationist. And he came to the Times and said you know, there's a real need for somebody to look seriously at education across the board and that none of the political parties really were looking at reform in the, in the, on the scale that's needed. So uh, John Witherow, the editor, said that's a great idea. And he asked me to take on the chair of, of the commission. Um, and we decided that we had to look at the whole scope right through from early years through to higher education and lifelong learning, which was incredibly ambitious in a year. But we, once, you, once we started looking at it, we realized that it's impossible to disentangle the different elements because uh, you know children arrive at primary school with all kinds of problems and then they leave school and they go into uh, work or um, onto higher education. And you can't kind of dis detach one bit of the system from the rest of it. So we did the whole sweep. Yes, which, as you say, is a very ambitious thing to take on. We were, we were just discussing offline before we started recording that the scope of this conversation is so broad. That's the reason that these podcasts are often in the three to four hour region, because <laughs> they are. there's just so much to, yeah. to cover. Um, and so just before we get into the details of the recommendations and the reports due out later this week, or by the, by the time listeners hear this, the, the reports uh, will have come out and so people can can dive into this. And I've only seen the, the, the summary of recommendations so far. Um, but just before we get into, the, into what your findings were, can you just give a sense of what the scope of this was? How many people did you speak to? Um, how did you select witnesses uh, from across a rate? I don't know if witnesses is the right term, contributors from across the full spectrum, as you say, from early years through to adult education? Yeah, so first of all, we brought together this group of 22 commissioners who included a children's writer, Michael Morpurgo, the astronomer royal, Lord Rees, uh, school leaders, Lucy Heller, the head of ARC, uh, Sally Coates, who helps run United Learning, um, cultural figures like Tristram Hunt, who runs the VNA, business leaders, Damon Buffini. Um, so it was a real cross-section and some politicians as well, Robert, Robert Halfon, who's the, the uh, Conservative Chair of the Education Select Committee. Uh, and we asked uh, Andrea Schleicher of the OECD to be our international advisor as well. So we had this really high-powered, um, fascinating group of people. I remember the first time we had the commission, we, we met online because it was during the pandemic. And it felt like one of those kind of 
you know, when people ask you to do it, your dream dinner party of kind of, and it's Marilyn Monroe, Albert Einstein, um, this kind of really extraordinary mixture of people who we brought together. Um, and we then held um, fortnightly evidence sessions um, with expert witnesses across. We, we decided to um, separate the commission into 10 areas of um, work streams, if you like. And we held uh, evidence sessions on each of those work streams over the course of the year. And we had also regional roundtables in um, Bradford, Cornwall, Edinburgh. Uh, we did some, uh, Cardiff ended up being virtual because I got COVID, <laughs> um, Northern Ireland as well. So we had a mixture of online and in-person regional roundtables. Um, we set up some youth panels as well because we wanted to make sure that young people um, were really at the heart of this uh, and that what they wanted mattered and we had um, focus groups as well with parents uh, which uh, one with Mumsnet the um, uh, parenting uh, forum and um, I also did lots of one-to-one -one interviews and in the end it was I think more than 600 people that I spoke to for this uh, or we collectively spoke to uh, and I also went on lots and lots of really fascinating school visits both in this country and abroad so I went to Estonia, Finland, the Netherlands, went over to the United States to see what they're doing in Silicon Valley and um, Arizona so visiting universities, schools, colleges all over the world to work out what what works, because actually a lot of a lot of this I realized is that there, there are a lot of amazing things already happening. So we wanted to just kind of try and find out what is working and what could be rep replicated and kind of rolled out more generally and learn from the best um, and, and also just approached it well, we approached it with a really open mind so what's working no kind of ideological agenda uh, and just kind of be pragmatic about the whole thing um, and one of the things that I felt having looked at this very strongly is that we just need to take the politics out of education it should be about uh, what works for children what works for the country what works for business uh, and it shouldn't be sort of driven by ideological divisions on either left or right, actually. And one of our recommendations is that there should be a 15-year strategy for education beyond politics, above, politi above party politics, let's say. I mean, politics, you can't take the politics out of it entirely, but it shouldn't be a left-right knowledge, skills, you know, all these false ideological divisions. Absolutely. I think that you're going to get strong support from that. Maybe not from secretaries of state who seem to quite like having it as their plaything that they can put their stamp on. But more broadly, I recently had um, Tim Brighouse and Mick Waters on the podcast talking about their amazing recent book about our schools. And that was one of their, I think yeah. it was their first key recommendation was to have this cross-party, like essentially sort of a select committee type sort of setup where it was... Yeah you know, looking at this in the round and not just having a bunch of like-minded people putting their stamp on it and having this endless pendulum going back yeah. and forth. And we had, um, when the, when the uh, report came out this week, we had a letter uh, to the Times signed by 10 former education secretaries across the party divide, actually, and a former prime minister, Nobel Prize winner, business leaders, cultural figures from across the board saying, look, put education back up the agenda you know, uh, and it's really important. I think I think people across the spectrum really feel that strongly now. Yeah, it's interesting how they always seem to talk sense once they've left office. <laughs> there was definitely more sense from the former politicians than the, perhaps the current ones. It's true. Yeah, we'll we'll leave that as a rhetorical question for now. But with, with your with your political journalist hat on, maybe that's a conversation for another time. Um, and so there is gonna... actually a really interesting thing though, because I think. Um, the politicians worry that if they're too radical, it's going to be alienating to the voters. But actually, what our research showed is I think the political backdrop's changed and that parents really now do want something different. So we had some YouGov polling done, and it found that 65% of parents think that the education system's too focused on exams and grades. And they're, they're worried, they, um, um, over half think that that's bad for their children's mental health. And that that 65%, um, you know, was, that was massively outweighed the number who thought that 
exams weren't important enough and parents wanted much greater focus on well-being and other activities as well as just exams so i think the political backdrop slightly changed actually yeah i i absolutely agree um and again i think you're going to get lots of support for that and so i'm going to ask you a really difficult question now because you just talked about this incredibly expansive inquiry and i'm so jealous i wish that i could have spent as a as a long time education geek to have spent the year that you've spent talking to all those people visiting yeah. all these places and just it's like been such a privilege actually yeah yeah i've got mm. i've got education geekery envy big time um if you if you, I know that, like as you say, this is a hugely expansive thing. But if you had to, to sort of distill it into an overarching theme before we get into the into the recommendations, what would you say is the sort of the key message that emerged from all of this work that you've done? I think it's about breadth that our education system has become too narrow, too narrowly focused on one form of success, uh, and that means it's not drawing out the talent of every child. Um, and that also means it's not giving businesses the things they need. So, you know, we had surveys done of businesses which found that 85% either have or are predicting skill shortages. And the things that the economy needs are creativity, curiosity, empathy, teamwork, communication skills, all the things that the education system very narrowly defined on this kind of mark scheme driven assessment system isn't delivering um and i think if you're the government that's trying to you've got two sort of main things you need to do you're wanting to level up the country create more equality and you're trying to kickstart productivity so you deal with the economy and cost of living crisis the one way you do both of those things is education reform and by by creating more breadth so i think the the, the kind of probably my biggest takeaway coming at this from the outside was how narrow it is compared to the breadth that's needed. Quite a lot of people said to us, um, you know, the world is changing so fast and uh, AI is going to take over a lot of the jobs, um, the workplace is changing, um, and the, the skills that you're going to need in the future are those more human skills. But yet our system is increasingly robotic, the education system. Um, so we're not preparing the children for the jobs of the future. And um, several people said that it's, you know, the education system is an analog system in a digital age. If you look at how much the world, of, you know, whether it's how we travel, how we bank, how we shop, it's changed absolutely totally in the last 10 years. And education hasn't really. Yeah. Absolutely. And so so the first recommendation, the top of your your uh, so so the, so for the benefit of listeners, the, the summary of findings that I've seen, there's a 12 point plan for education uh, with, the, with the subtitle bringing out the best. And then there's an appendix with a list of recommendations under 10 headings, which we haven't got time to get into today. But we can just pick out some of the some of the highlights. Um, and those and just so real listeners understand those 10 headings are the 10 chapters of the final report which are also based around the 10 areas that we looked at so the 10 kind of work streams if you like and within each of those we've we've had lots of recommendations it's very hard to distill them down into a sort of 12 point plan and um, um, some people said it should have been a 10 point plan but i couldn't lose the final two <laughs> Yeah, I don't envy you that that challenge. Like editing stuff down is a world of pain, isn't it? Um, and so, just to give listeners, I won't read them all out, but to give listeners a, a sense. So, the f number one is the purpose of education. Again, that was the strong parallel. That was the first thing that Tim Brighouse and Mick Waters talked about. It starts with that, or rather, purposes, because there is mm. no single purpose, and therefore we need a more diverse system, as you say, more broad that addresses different purposes. Uh, there's leveling up the curriculum, assessment, teaching, technology, you get the idea. And so the first one is assessment. And the things that you were just talking about just now, about how narrow things have become, and that there's all this wider stuff that, that people need in their lives, regardless of the world of work, but also, as you say, the world of work and employers um, have been saying for as long as we've been alive, probably, and longer, that the school system is not producing people who have the skill sets that they need in order to survive and thrive in the world of work. And you were talking about what's often referred to as soft skills, which is not a good phrase, creativity, collaboration, empathy, teamwork, and so on. And I think that a lot of the 
problem with this is that it comes down to assessment. There was a, a former guest, Priya Lakhani, uh, had this phrase, we treasure what we measure. And the problem, is, in a nutshell, I think, is that it's really hard to measure those things, to measure creativity. There is no robust measure of creativity or of collaboration or teamwork or empathy, for example. Those things, with my social scientist hat on, are very nebulous and very difficult to measure. Whereas you can do a test, and especially with, you know, with AI coming in, like you say, like, like increasingly we can do tests that, that are able to measure what what children know right so it's this like narrow narrow sort of a thing about subject knowledge that is easier to measure and therefore we treasure what we measure and therefore that's what's done and so given that question of like how hard it is to measure these wider things the the number one recommendation is to reform is to reform assessment and and the headline is this idea of a british baccalaureate offering broader academic and vocational qualifications at 18. I don't know whether that means, um, well, well we, I do know what the implications are for GCSEs there, um, with parity and funding per pupil in both routes, so equalizing the emphasis on academic and vocational routes, which for goodness me, like, like that's, that came out really strongly in an interview with, with Donald Clark that I had recently about how you know, vocational routes are just not given the, the bandwidth that they absolutely require and deserve. And then you were talking about a slimmed down set of exams at 16 to bring, to bring out the best in every child. And there's four headings within assessment. One is this idea of a British baccalaureate at 18. The second one at 16, pupils taking a slimmed down set of exams in five core subjects, which is, I think, a brilliant idea. Um, because then they could have more more choice to to do other things, right? My son at the moment is is um, just doing his GCSEs, and he's gutted about. I just had a really interesting conversation with him the other day that he's having to whittle down his choices to three to three options at A level. Yeah, he's interested. I'm it's interested terrible. in about twenty things. Why yeah. could we not have an A level system where you do like lots of little nano courses? Yeah. So that because just as you just as you're growing into adulthood and your interests are sprouting in a hundred directions like a tree, we're narrowing down people's options. So that's yeah. really interesting. The third one is to equalize the per people funding of 16 to 19 education um, with the 11 to 16 budget. And the fourth one is a digital learner profile, which I, I imagine that you've had some interesting conversations with the Rethinking Assessment Group who are coming exactly. up with something very similar. Mm. So would you like to flesh out this a little bit? Because it seems like this is the, the real, like the nub of the issue is like if yeah. we can figure out how to get assessment right, then we'll be able to treasure many more things that are now being measured. Yeah, that's the thing. It's sort of become, I mean, in a way, I, you don't want the whole focus to be about assessment. But on the other hand, it's become the tail, the wa the tail that wags the dog, if you like. So you have to look at it. Um, and everything at the moment kind of leads towards the assessment system that we've got. And if, if the kind of defining problem is the lack of breadth, as you say, with your son, we, we felt very strongly that you needed to have a broader range of subjects at 18 that that, uh, and also that you should end this kind of sheep of go sheep and goats division between vocational and academic, mm. and also actually between humanities and sciences. So the scientists on our commission, like um, Dame Nancy Rothwell, uh, who's the president of Manchester University and a very respected scientist herself, she said, you know, she loved, she wanted to do art A-level, and actually science, she argues, is incredibly creative, but somehow children are forced to choose between um humanities and sciences at the age of 14 or 15 often yeah um so that was one thing and 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 that you know to, to the critics who will say assessment reform is about dumbing down it's absolutely not the case i think this this system could actually be more stretching for the most academic but also give a kind of equally valid route for those who have other talents um, so we wanted to create more variety, basically. So that every, and then also within the baccalaureate, as with the international baccalaureate, which already exists and is working around the world, including in quite a lot of British schools, actually, you, we would propose that you should have as part of it, everybody doing an extended project, everybody doing some volunteering, public service, something to, 
to create, um, to sort of foster those broader skills that we talk about, an element of something creative, an element of um, other kind of wider, what you called softer skills, although I don't, as you said, I don't, I don't like that word actually, because I think they're pretty important skills. Um, so it should be a broader qualification. And at 16, um, there's just a problem that the number of GCSEs that children are doing is sucking all the energy out of the system. Um, and actually, there's no other country in the, it, that, is, that does so many exams at both 16 and 18. So we felt that you could have the... Exams are really important because you need to give children something to work towards, something that they can feel validates them and their effort, something to also for teachers to work for towards for to, to hold schools to account to some extent. But it sh the, at the moment, the sort of whole energy is being sucked out. And you end up with this kind of mark scheme mentality. There was a brilliant story I heard um, from Ian McEwan, the novelist, whose son had been asked to do an essay on one of his novels. And so he had a long chat with his dad. I think, you know, what did the author mean by X or Y uh, in Enduring Love? He had a long chat to his dad, <laughs> wrote a really brilliant analysis, and then got a terrible mark because it didn't fit what the teacher's <laughs> mark scheme said. So you kind of, the, there's a mark, I've looked at some of the mark schemes for politics, actually, um, in the past, and they're so oversimplified that they're actually wrong. You know, so it's um, there's so there's that sense of we're kind of we've got boxed into this very sort of tick boxy mentality, um, and and I think by having fewer exams, you'd leave more space and time for other things, and also for children, uh, for lessons and education to be for teachers to have more creativity actually as well. So one of our commissioners, um, Lucy Kellaway. Uh, who was a FT journalist, is now a teacher and set up a charity called Now Teach um, to encourage people to go into teaching after other careers. Yeah. Um, she described how she'd been in an economics class and a kid had asked an absolutely brilliant question, something about tax policy. And she could have spent a whole hour um, talking about this question. The children would have learned so much. It would have been really fascinating both for her and for the pupils. Um, but it was impossible because she had six more slides to get through to, to help them prepare for the exams. Uh, and it was sort of somehow she, it, she, she said that this sort of curiosity and the creativity is just being destroyed by the number of exams. So we're not saying get rid of exams. We're saying redesign the system to introduce more breadth um, and give more space for other things as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had, I had a really interesting conversation recently with a friend who's a teacher, a very, very brilliant teacher. Uh, I used to work with him. And he was saying that he just feels like he is just preparing kids for exams and that it that he it feels unfair. Like he was describing this, like this, this particular class that he teaches, a bottom set um year 10 class and he's like they just don't get it and i'm talking to them about like the the specific heat capacity of these various different materials and they're just staring at me like what are you on about like yeah. why are you talking to me about this like this is so far removed from what i need but what's interesting is that like that teacher can't sort of go on the record really and talk about that openly because you know if he was to do that i imagine that his senior colleagues would that consider that he was talking down the school, say, or if like parents of those kids might say, oh, he's got low ambitions or something. And so I think that the, the way that we focus on assessment so much and the sort of the accountability culture that we have is such that, that I think that there's a lot of people who have dissenting views within the teaching profession. Yeah. And those views are often not aired because of, because of what, what Stephen Ball at, at UCL refers to as the micro-politics of little fears. He says that people sort of just keep their powder dry they're like I need to just pay the mortgage and just keep my head down and I'm not going to speak out or blow the whistle about what I see to be yeah. dodgy or unethical practices because we just need to keep this show on the road and, and I think that there are so many problems that, that just sort of go unaddressed because of this sort of weird culture and of, of, of norms like social and behavioral norms mm. where people aren't don't don't feel able to to say what they see as the problems that they're, that they're facing. So 
So we definitely heard at our roundtables around the country, regional roundtables, head teachers and school leaders and teachers all over the country just saying this, the system's broken. You know, there, there was in, in Cornwall, I remember someone saying something like, you know, we're, we're preparing children for a world that doesn't exist. And in Bradford, a head teacher said, um, you know, we're, uh, we don't want to catch up from COVID. We don't want to go back to what was before. We've got to use this as a reset moment. But I think on assessment, there were there were sort of two other piece of, pieces of evidence that really struck me. Um, the first was that our business survey found that businesses aren't taking uh, grades seriously anymore. They don't trust the assessment system. So one in, set, one in six businesses, there, it was a survey done for us by PwC, the consultants, um, one in six businesses take no notice at all of GCSEs and A-levels. They are doing their own recruitment assessment techniques because they think that the current, the, the sort of national assessment system isn't getting what they need. Uh, and actually, really interestingly, they found that that was getting a more diverse intake um, than the sort of more conventional route, which got your sort of classic, um, what, as they described, sort of white middle-class men. Uh, they, they were getting a much more diverse intake through um, their own assessment uh, recruitment techniques. Um, and the other thing was that the, the science that Sarah Jane Blakemore, who's one of our commissioners, the um, professor of neuroscience at Cambridge, she said that since GCSEs were introduced, the there have been such developments in neuroscience and the way in which the adolescent, the adolescent brain develops. Um, and that actually having this hugely intense, big number of exams involving a lot of rote learning really isn't capitalizing on the way in which the adolescent brain is developing. So that for me was really fascinating. And then the other, for me, devastating fact is that you've got a third of kids failing, uh, being written off as failures at 16 um, because they don't get the kind of good pass in maths and English. Um, and that I just think you put those three things together, along with the fact that parents now think the system is too focused on exams. And one witness after another, you know, James Dyson, the entrepreneur, Paul Nurse, the Nobel Prize winning scientist, Manu Shafiq, the, the economist, head of the LSE, they, one after another, talked about how the problems of this narrowing down and that, that uh, at, you know, uh, and that there should be a sort of broader baccalaureate type system at 18. Um, and that those, all of those factors, both for the sort of economy, for the science, if we want the vaccine, you know, inventors of the future, we need to have people who are creative and scientific. Um, all of those things mean that I think this is a really important reform, actually. And really interestingly, um, I look back at the history of assessment reform and um, in the Blair era, they, Mike Tomlinson produced a blueprint which was for a sort of baccalaureate type system. And then uh, in the Gove, Michael Gove era, um, Sir Richard Sykes, uh, who's now the chair of Vaccine Task Force, led a review of um, assessment, which also suggested scrapping GCSEs. Um, and I went back to both of those um, people somebody who'd led a review for Labour, somebody who'd led a review for the Conservatives, and both said now the case for reform is even more urgent than it was when they did their reviews. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and in my interview with with Tim and Mick, um, which have you read that book? The, 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 I this, have. It's brilliant, extraordinary book. It's mm. astonishing. The, the chapter two, where and chapters two and three, where they, they they interviewed like every Secretary of State for the last forty years or so. Yeah. Um, and they talk about about how Tomlinson was the Tomlinson recommendations were scrapped um, by Blair, and it was essentially just for quite mundane political reasons and again so so i think that, that you know the 15-year plan and depoliticizing education mm. will maybe come on to in a moment because that does seem to be the end of the piece of string that's the reason we that the answers are in the room as it were it's just that they're not happening for sort of for, for political machinations yeah. reasons and also i think that the politics has changed though so i think public opinion has changed since the pandemic and people are now much more worried about 
well-being, mental health, um, other activities beyond grades. And they also, the fact that exams were cancelled somehow throws a new perspective on the whole thing. You realise that there are other things that matter. I mean, I feel it myself as a parent. You sort of realise what actually is important in life. And also, I think the other factor is technology. Um, so, you know, it is now possible to do much more continuous, accurate, continuous assessment. Very soon it will be possible to have a very different way of assessing children on a more ongoing basis. Um, and the, the um, Ofqual, I think, is already looking at having a sort of take the, do the exam when you're ready type system. So that I think technology will create much more flexibility as well within the next five years, certainly 10 years and possibly five years. So we've got to kind of change the way we think about this. Yeah, I think that so much of what we do is just because it's efficient, like the timetable, uh, age, not stage, learning, um, teaching only in subject disciplines. There's so many ways in which mm. the, 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 the routine of school life works. And it's just because it's easy to, to organize it in that way. Like, like yeah. to have like when ready assessments sounds lovely, but I, I imagine that a school or school timetabler would be like, that just sounds like a thousand yeah. problems. Like, how do you organize this? And so that, that, that's, a, that's, that's a separate, let's just park that for now. Before we move on from assessments, um, one of the things that I've that I've been wrestling with a bit recently, and I know that like lots and lots of people across the spectrum, as you know, there's lots of little mini culture wars that happen within education, the so-called sort of traditionalists and progressives and, and what have yeah. you. Um, but like this, there are some things that unify people across the piece. And one of them is the thing that you were talking about, the fact that the assessment system essentially fails one in three young people as they leave school that's just appalling and it's like mm. it makes kids feel really bad about themselves and it doesn't have to be that way and I think that there's there's a widespread consensus that that that, that needs to change but the the problem is that is that like the alternatives to what we have currently people often you know that that saying of, of Winston Churchill's that democracy is the worst system of, of governance that we have apart from everything else we've ever tried and people sort of say the same about exams they're like it's the worst form of assessment but it's not as it's not as bad as coursework is because that can be really easily gained. It's not as bad as portfolios because that's easy for for wealthier, more privileged families to 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 gain through through private tuition, for example. And so there's this there's this sort of prevailing view at the moment. I think certainly among the more traditionalist end of the of the education debate spectrum, if you like, is that is that exams are the sort of are the, are the provide the 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 best way of ensuring that kids from disadvantaged backgrounds are able to compete with their more advantaged peers on a more or less level playing field and that any alternatives that we come up with need to have a really strong answer to that question how can we then make sure that this can't be gamed yeah. by privileged families to give further advantage to their already advantaged children but I think that the answer to this question <laughs> is contained within what you said here because we're not saying get rid of exams. This is not a binary no. situation. We're saying, yes, exams are really, really useful. They provide this level playing field, but it should not be the only game in town. Let's slim it down, as you've suggested, to like five. And you only need five to get into, into college anyway. Like when you give kids the choice, like I used to work in a self-managed learning center and nearly all of them, so the kids can do what they want when they want, <clears throat> and nearly all of them do five. Cause they're like, that's the, that's, that, that's the only number that I need to get into college. Why would I do 10 GCSEs? It's just like unnecessary. And it's just spreading my, my attention too thinly. And so we reduce it down to five, bring in more elective options where you could have these other types of assessments that, that, you know, and it's fine. It doesn't have to be comparing everybody on a level playing field because that's ridiculous. Like the diversity of human experience is that if you compare everybody on, on a level playing field, a one-size-fits-all system is just going to miss out so much of the nuance. And so I am just 100% behind this as a, as a solution to that, to that issue, mm. that you slim it down and then diversify the rest. It just seems to be the way to go. Well, it seems very strange to me coming to this education world from the outside is everybody seems to be in these binary boxes. So you have to, you're in favour of knowledge or skills or you're a traditionalist or progressive or you're, you know, and actually it seems to me, you need knowledge and skills, you know, you need exams and coursework and other things. And it's just sort of, 
it feels like we're being forced into these ideological divides which are actually false uh, and the kind of pragmatic solution is to kind of just make it's about redressing the balance rather than kind of going from one extreme to the other um yeah yeah but but i mean i do think that the for the traditionalists who say the current system is the only way they they do have to answer that question you know you've got a third of children failing you've got a third of teachers told us you know ready to quit you've got one in six children you know with a um probable mental health disorder the the current system isn't working in you know so there needs to be an answer to that if if our answer isn't the answer then what's your answer sort of thing yeah absolutely and i and i do think that this is the answer because it's inclusive like what i what i've increasingly come to to the conclusion that like the way out of this binary thinking is diversification right we don't need to yeah. we don't need to to prove that the trads are wrong or to prove that the trads are right once and for all yeah. we can say like traditionalist stuff has real value mm. and so does progressive stuff and if you really look at the research that's what comes out you know that 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 um collaborative collaboration and, and oracy and spoken language and all of these other other things skills based education is super super important as well as knowledge as you say and so the answer is to diversify and not just to sort of to prove that that one set of people were right all along which seems to be um the sort of the assumption behind the debate so one thing that's really been fascinating to me going around visiting schools is that there are so many good ways to run a school so and i think one of the problems sometimes it, it, that that some suggest that there's only one sort of true and proper path for education but mm. i can i remember so just to take two schools in britain for example leaving aside the schools around the world but there's a school called xp in doncaster where they've basically torn up the traditional curriculum the children learn through what they call expeditions so it's a subject that they then study all the disciplines through that particular subject um and it's a very there's a strong focus on mental health they have kind of mindfulness mondays and their their motto is all about compassion they have no detentions um but they have great results you know outstanding by ofsted um then i went to another school which is um much more traditional bedford free school um where they have silent corridors you know detentions if you turn up with the wrong pen or you're a minute late uh, or wearing the wrong shoes very very strict at one level but also they then have they dedicate the whole of wednesday afternoon to electives so they they kind of have take the stop the traditional timetable completely and children might do building a medieval trebuchet or chess or gardening or everyone's has to be or is encouraged to be in a sports team even if they're rubbish at sport and there's that and both of those schools put as strong an emphasis on character as on qualifications and they come at it from a very different direction but they're both really good in different ways and i think it's a mistake to sort of devalue one or the other you have to recognize um that there are different ways of delivering that but what's important is that you have yes knowledge is important but also skills yes qualifications but also character yeah yeah absolutely and you're right like for some people that very very traditionalist sort of no excuses discipline you know real focus on on subject knowledge and what have you is uh, like people some people really love it like some kids seem to thrive in that environment parents seem to really like it some teachers seem to really like it and for others it is complete anathema and it just gives them brings them out in hives and they want to do something that's much more inclusive to to uh, to all kinds of different types of kids and like you say xp is a brilliant example of that and um and what i would love to see it would be an e a, a, an educational ecosystem where that that spectrum of choice and also even stretching beyond xp to things like the self managed learning college to like self organized that democratic learning communities are available in every community so that so that teachers and parents and young people can vote with their feet and 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 go somewhere with a degree of of autonomy or strictness or knowledge focus or skills focus or whatever that suits their particular tastes how we get from where we are to that to that vision of a more sort of rainbow coalition of of different educational providers uh is an interesting question um but that that's a, a nice vision of the future i think that we could that we could work towards
I do think you have to look at Ofsted as well if you're going to have a more kind of diverse um, ecosystem because uh, a lot of schools told us that they felt that Ofsted reinforced a very particular kind of view and that in fact Amanda Spielman the chief inspector herself admitted to us that the accountability of the pupils of the schools have got muddled up with the sort of accountability of pupils so basically exam grades have become too dominant in determining the success of schools um, so one of our recommendations is to have a kind of reformed Ofsted which puts is much more collaborative so it's working to improve schools um, we had a teacher tap survey done which we asked teachers to rate Ofsted and less than 0.5% rated it as outstanding. Um, the overwhelming majority said it was either requires improvement or, or inadequate. And it just feels as if there needs to be that um, Ofsted needs to take a broader definition of success and Ofsted needs to be more collaborative rather than confrontational. I mean, Alison Peacock, the chair of the Charter College of Teaching, told us that Ofsted was operating a reign of terror. And there is that sense of school, it's very hard to have this diversity if you've got an inspectorate that's enforcing one very particular view of education. Mm. And I don't think it has to be that way. I think have, uh, for me, having an inspectorate, as a parent, having an inspectorate is very important, but you want it to be reinforcing the right things rather than just being frightening. Absolutely. And I think that Ofsted have sort of had a bit of a PR push in recent years. They sort of had Twitter accounts. And when Sean Harford was there, they, 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 he was, they were doing much more sort of engagement with the profession. And, and, and like the, the public face of Ofsted was much more sort of cuddly. But then the reports that people were talking about, about the very, very brutal reality of being inspected, in really difficult circumstances and this has continued through the pandemic lots of schools are saying that they've been inspected and they're not allowed to use the pandemic as an excuse for not having looked at you know a hundred different things and being judged to be failing on that basis the reality um that's coming through is that i think that the reign of terror is still a fair description and just to just to share with listeners the, the point in your 12-point plan for ofsted which i think that you'll get a lot of support for it says a reformed ofsted that works collaboratively with schools to secure sustained improvement rather than operating through fear and a new school report card with a wider range of metrics including well-being school culture inclusion and attendance to unleash the potential of schools again you know if, <clears throat> to come back to we treasure what we measure mm. if the well-being of staff is the way that you get an outstanding ofsted then that's going to change the culture of schools overnight yeah. And again, so I think you're going to get a lot of support for that. And we're, as the Times, and we're going to also look at our league tables, because I, when we thought about this, we realised actually it's the newspaper that publishes the league tables based on grades. So we're going to look at our league tables and try and work out if there's a way, as we do actually with our university league tables, of having a broader range of measures um, or multiple league tables, you know, to take into account inclusion, well-being and other factors as well. Um, it's going to be a bit of a long-term project or, you know, medium-term project. Probably won't be possible to do it within a matter of weeks, but we're going to certainly look at that. And I think in terms of measuring well-being, there's a really interesting model in Manchester, which has been um, done by the Be Well um, survey and the David Gregson and his foundation. They've been surveying um, all young people in secondary school um, and, and they've done a so basically a survey of mental health and well-being, and they've worked out how to how to really assess young people's well-being with a very rigorous questionnaire. Uh, and we're suggesting that that should be rolled out nationally, so that you have a real sense. They do this in Estonia, they do it in the Netherlands, so you have a sense of the mental well-being of of young people and children, uh, and that then again drives how schools behave because officer can then look at that and then well-being becomes a much more important factor because we feel that um you know obviously uh, i think it's incredibly important to have enough counselors one of our recommendations is that there should be a counselor available for every young person that could be online and our youth panel said that they would be happy for it to be online rather than necessarily face-to-face -face, which makes it cheaper and easier to recruit counselors but also you have to 
try and make young people more resilient early on. You have to stop, ideally, you'd stop people getting to that crisis point of needing counselling. Um, and I think that is partly through those um, broader range of activities, whether that's um, playing sport or drama or, uh, you know, having, um, you know, you teaching resilience and well-being in, in different ways and imparting it uh, rather than just intellectually teaching it. Um, it's very important earlier, earlier on in education rather than just dealing with the sort of crisis point of a mental health disorder. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, that, you know, we've known for a really long time that the way that you that you create, uh, I don't think create is the right word, but the way that you enable people to become really sort of um, balanced, self-actualizing, you know, self-directed learners is, you know, self-directed learning theory, which says that there are three sort of components of autonomy, competence, and relatedness like relationships and, and like social connections and so on and it seems like we've really prioritized competence the whole agenda around exams is all about sort of demonstrating that you're competent that you can demonstrably measure that you know stuff and the other two relatedness it seems like there's a there is a sort of an ideological underpinning people often talk about neoliberalism when they talk about recent education reforms and about about market-based sort of uh, ideas and the the, the uh, league tables would be an example of that that you're comparing people um, and that there's, that there's this idea that the competition will sort of will drive innovation um, and it's very much this sort of this mindset of like being like the whole of the education system is sort of about better than like who can perform better than other people rather than being able to work better with other people, for example, and that's where we and and so that's the relatedness bit that we could be focusing a bit more on that and autonomy. Like that's just this is a really hot potato. There is there are some people who look at very sort of narrow, like experimental sort of cognitive science experiments that suggest that when you give children choice, that they don't make the choices that you want them to make, and therefore. That you and, and on your measures, they perform worse than when kids are told exactly what to do, and therefore giving kids choice is a bad idea. But that's a really narrow interpretation of what of the importance of autonomy. And we know this, there's been huge amounts of research done on this in the workplace that for adults, they rate autonomy even more highly than what they get paid. Like people just want to have a small amount of say over what they do and when and how, and to have a sense that their voice and their choice is listened to and respected. And that also includes allowing them to make bad choices and then to, you know, to try things that don't work for them and to fail at stuff and to and to say, oh, okay, that's not for me. And for that to be okay. And and we we often we often pay lip service to this. We say to kids, it's okay to fail, it's okay to make mistakes. But the whole culture of high accountability and within the teaching profession as well is that mistakes are not tolerated at all. People are very risk averse. Um, and so I think that if we can if we can figure out, like you say, how to in introduce a bit more choice, this idea of electives is lovely. Slim down the core assessments and introduce more choice and more more opportunities for relatedness. I love the idea of every kid being on a sports team, whether they are any good at it or not. Like that's a that's a lovely idea. I think there's um I think you do need to have a minimum. You need to have certain things that you do expect kids to know because they need that for their live so you can't just it can't just be sort of happy clappy anyone do whatever they want in my view um but there's a really interesting link i think between mental illness or mental health problems and this kind of lack of agency over your life so martin seligman in the 1960s created this idea of learned help or invent devised the idea of learned helplessness didn't he yeah. uh which he linked to depression and i when i went to see um Sal Khan, Salman Khan, the founder of the Khan Academy in California, he was fascinating because he, his philosophy is that um, one of the problems with the education system is it's, it's turned children into passive learners, whereas we need to encourage them to be more active learners. And this generation is incredibly proactive. You know, they're organizing climate change marches, they're setting up YouTube businesses they're you know making their own tiktok videos curating their spotify playlists and then they get to school and they have to sit in rows and basically become passive recipients of information um so at his school he's got a physical school where they um the 
pupils are the teaching assistants and they uh, the classes are mixed age and each child follows their own kind of individual personalized kind of learning program through his Khan Academy technology. Um, but he says he thinks that one of the reasons there's such a acute mental health crisis among the young now is this lack of autonomy and agency that children feel that they're, you know, teenagers are basically pretty adult in their mentality, but they're being treated like children, they're being infantilized. And actually, so are teachers. So there is that sort of sense of disempowerment that's very um, debilitating. And, and, and his theory, which I think is interesting, was that that was contributing to the mental health crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, oh my, we, we, so we've got about 10 minutes left here. And there's so much that <laughs> I would like to speak with you about. There was a piece in The Times this morning about, about early years, which I, we haven't got time now to discuss i don't think because there's one more big one that i want to talk to you about before we before we wrap this up and then i want to ask you about next steps but just to flag the early years thing um i'll, I'll put a, i'll put a link to that article in the show notes but then um, you, you and put, can i just say one thing on that that's so one of the things that shocked me most doing this commission is there's that gap at 16 between advantaged and disadvantaged pupils of it's over 18 months yeah. which is shocking enough but what shocked me most is that 40 percent of that gap emerges before the age of five and yeah. one of our main arguments is that you have to invest more in the early years couldn't agree more and one of the things that blew me away it says in there a library in every primary school and i was like that's weird surely every library has a every primary school has a library one in eight they don't uh, no it's unbelievable. And our, our YouGov polling showed, you know, overwhelmingly parents think there should be. It seems common sense, doesn't it? But they, and it wouldn't actually cost that much to do it. And it, it was Cressida Cowell, the children's laureate, um, who's the author of the How to Train Your Dragon books, said to us, of course there should be a library in every primary school. It's, it's um, you legally have to have one in every prison, but you don't in every primary school. It's just staggering to me. I've I sort of, I don't have any further questions on that, but but just other than just a big resounding yes. Okay, so in the last few minutes, I want to come back to the other the other big thing. I often talk about the end of the piece of string, like what's the thing that we need to talk about here? We talked about assessment being one big thing, and then we talked about the politicization of education, and that's and that's the massive one. And so just to just to share with listeners, it's point 12 in your 12-point plan. It says that we need to have a 15-year strategy for education drawn up in consultation with business leaders, scientists, local mayors, civic leaders, and cultural figures. Put it, I, I would also include parents and carers in that, yep. young people, classroom teachers, um, putting education above short-term party politics and bringing out the best in our schools, colleges, and universities. How are we going to do that? I mean, it's clearly what needs to happen, but how can we transition? What needs to happen in order to transition to that that way of doing things? Because it's so obviously what needs to happen. We need to, to remove education policy from the short-term interest of the electoral cycle. But how do we do that? Well, it's difficult, but I think, I hope that our report will be a start, actually, because it's, it's evidence-based, it's, it's pragmatic, it's non-partisan. We've just looked at the facts, we've looked at what works, and I would hope that people from all parties could, or, and none, could sign up to that and think, actually, yes, this is sensible, and it's crazy to carry on as we are. Um, and I think if you look at the history of those really difficult policies, whether that's pension policy, and actually there has been cross-party um, agreement, university tuition fees, there was cross-party agreement, actually, and even in schools policy, the academies that Tony Blair set up then pretty much were taken on as free schools by uh, Michael Gove and David Cameron. So there has been a kind of cross-party consensus to some extent in the past on some issues in education. And I think there just needs to be a recognition that this is now about the country's economic and social future. It's not about one party's short-term interest. And, and I think that the other thing that's very important is that the Treasury needs to think about education as a capital investment, if you like. So it's an investment in human capital. 
You can't do that on the basis of a three-year spending review system that just says, okay, this hasn't worked within three years. You know, you have to think of it in just as with something like HS2 or Crossrail is a huge, or, you know, nuclear power station is a huge long-term investment. Education is a huge long-term investment that in the end will pay enormous dividends. So there's research, um, James Heckman, the Nobel Prize winning scientist, did a piece of research showing that for every pound invested in the early years, I think it was 16 pounds is um, generated later on in, in, in savings from sort of social problems later on and improved economic and educational outcomes. So, you know, you have to stop thinking about this as a short term uh, spending review. That's one thing. And I think, you know, that you look at the um, education select committee. So Robert Halfon is a conservative, but I think agrees with that. He's on our commission, agrees with with all of this so that it's not a labor Tory thing in a weird way. It's a kind of knowledge, skills, traditionalist, progressive thing. Although yeah. I think the, the word progressive might be too much of a red bag to a bull. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to say progressive. It's just, you know, you don't have to box people into these doesn't, it's not actually a party political division. So I think there is scope, um, for collaboration. And so I'm assuming that it would have to be an act of law, right? This would have to be legislated that the, 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 the governance, the, the, the design of this 15 year plan would be, would be devolved to some sorts of cross party, um, system have you had conversations like people like robert halfern and jim knight and people who've sort of been involved in education for for a long time but aren't cabinet ministers i know are interested in this idea have you had discussions with cabinet ministers or shadow cabinet ministers is there any appetite for this idea in among the people who might be able to 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 legislate on this i definitely think there is privately actually i think there's a sort of the, the pol political class has to keep in their tribes publicly, but I think privately, on both sides actually, there is more openness among some, but not among others, for thinking about this in a much more long-term way. I mean, it's about the future of our children and our young people and our country. So there, there is much more kind of nobility in politics than politicians sometimes give give themselves credit for and so I do think there would be an openness and if you look at um uh, when I went to Estonia and talked to the um people there that they, they have this 15-year plan which is agreed by all the parties um so it doesn't you know so you uh, and it, maybe it's easier because they have coalitions they have um proportional electoral system but it's there's just no question that this would ever be politicized. Um, and I think if we could get to that situation, as we have done on pensions, as we did on higher education, as we did on um, academies and free schools, I, I remember it being a real kind of a, a symbol of modernity and modernization when Cameron backed the Blair reforms. And it was that sense of, um, you know, we, that we we are backing the future of the country. We're not acting in our narrow partisan self-interest. Yeah, I'd love to know more. I don't know if you have contacts with the, the Estonians, but I'd love to I'd love to get some of those people on the podcast to hear uh, about, about. I can definitely tell you um, there's a there's a so it's fascinating. Um, and their whole approach is. Um, so, you know, there's a, I went to a school, they learn robotics from the age of seven. They have virtual reality headsets to do their, they go in their geography lesson, they go to the rainforest in virtual reality or go to the Arctic. Um, and they have their whole curriculum is based around what they call 21st century competences, um, which are these things we were talking about, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, communication skills, collaboration. Uh, and there's that sense of, we're trying to prepare prepare the the country and the children for the future for work and also for life yeah yeah thank you okay so my final question is um so the the, the commission's published this week in a couple of days um or by the time people hear this a couple of days ago what are the what's the what are the next steps what have you got any plans for how the how you might take this forward beyond publication well, we really hope that um, politicians will take it seriously and we're going to 
talk we're hoping to have some meetings at the party conferences maybe some meetings in parliament because in the end this is going to have to be delivered by politicians uh so we're talking to people from all the parties about how this could be taken forward but also i hope there are things in there for teachers and parents that um just on a very practical level there are some case studies and examples of schools that we've been been around where they're already doing things very differently in the current situation. I think what's fascinating is you can, you can do it differently now. It's just an enormous effort. Because schools, heads, parents, and young people doing things very differently, but it, they often feel as if they're doing it despite the system. Uh, and what, we, what needs to happen is that it should be that the system's helping to create that diversity, that breadth. Um, uh, and that sort of drawing out really every talent of every child and bringing out the best of every school rather than it being a battle. Here, here. Well, what, that's a perfect note to, to, to end this on. Thank you hugely for, for taking the time to speak with me this morning and for sharing with me this sneak preview of the Commission's findings. And thank you for this huge piece of work that you've been that you've been involved in. I think that there's so much value here and there's way more to this commission than we've been able to cover today. I really recommend to to listeners to to have a read of these of these recommendations. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you so much for it's been really interesting. But, and also we um please do include a link to the report uh, along with the podcast. It's, everything's going to be outside the paywall, so everyone's going to be able to read everything for free. Brilliant. I will definitely do that. And if you'd like to come to speak about this at the Rethinking Education Conference, which is in London in September, you're very welcome. I'll send you some details. Um, that sounds that would great. be amazing because th this, this, be, this needs to be shared far and wide exactly thank you so much really interesting to talk to you time is a measure of change